Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series, Lifestyle of the Gospel, today with a message titled Defending the Gospel. So turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 16, verses 17 to 20, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I love books that have great endings. You know, I have absolutely no time for books with sad endings. You know, there's enough sadness in the world already. Who needs to have a book that ends that way? It seems so hopeless, and it seems the exact opposite of faith. See, I believe I will prevail, and I can't countenance a negative attitude. And since I believe my ending is going to be overwhelmingly good, and so I want my books to end that way as well. But I don't like books that simply say, and they lived happily ever after, as too trite, because the author doesn't describe what he means or she means by happily ever after. And I want to know what happy and good and fulfilling actually look like. That, for instance, is why I love the Chronicles of Narnia. They end with a vision of what Aslan always had in mind for Narnia. But of all the books I've read, the best ending of all is in the Bible. You know, the Bible starts with a grand explosion of light, the creation of a garden, and then it ends in a stunning celestial city whose builder and maker is God, a city that needs no moon or sun, for the Lord is its light. And then comes the invitation. If anyone is thirsty, let him come and drink without price. Come, Lord Jesus. Of course, there are many twists and turns in the plot line until one gets there, but that's what makes the ending ever more striking fills my soul with such unblemished joy. But there are some individual books in the Bible whose ending is somewhat more difficult to understand, and perhaps we might think, well, less satisfying. For instance, the the prophecy of Nahum is a denunciation of the cruelty of the Assyrian Empire, and it simply ends with these words to Assyria, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. Then it's over. The great book of Isaiah ends with the words about the damned. It says, For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. It's the end. Now, when it comes to the book of Romans, I'm going to argue that this great doctrinal book in our Bible does end in a marvelous benediction, a benediction that is quite fitting for such a book. But still, the book does end in a rather, shall I say, interesting way. You know, as I've been arguing, Romans 12 to 16 constitute the last section in Romans, the section I like to call the the lifestyle of the gospel. The section deals with the importance of living in Christian community, living in submission to governing authorities of our country, forgiving our enemies, living in humility, learning to discern the differences between those things that God has commanded of us and those things that are a matter of the free exercise of Christian conscience. And then finally, Paul tells us to follow the example of Christ. Learn to live as he did. And then after he has finished his treaty on Christian living, Paul then tells of his plans to visit Rome and then greets the notable Christians who are a part of that church. Well, you might expect at this moment that we would move directly to the benediction and then this grand book would be done, but it doesn't move directly to the benediction. Sandwiched in between the greetings and the benediction is Romans 16, 17 to 20. It simply says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. 
For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, why would Paul write this here just before the end of the book? I mean, after all, all the great doctrines have been written, but then he interjects this. You know, some have suggested that perhaps just when he was finishing up the book, someone had showed up from Rome and had told about troublemakers in that church. And then Paul adds this section at this point. Well, I suppose that's possible, but that's a lot of speculation. And I've never been satisfied with speculation as a way of doing Bible study. See, I think the answer as to why Paul writes this way is for two reasons. First, this seems to have been Paul's custom that at or near the end, he includes a set of warnings. You know, in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, which is the fourth last sentence in that long book, Paul writes, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. And in Galatians, at the very end of the book, he warns them about the Judaizers who are insisting that you can't be saved apart from circumcision. And so it seems that Paul sometimes likes warnings right at the end of a book. It's his style of writing, so to speak. And then second, it seems to me that the warning at the end of Romans is especially important. Paul, as we've seen, has very clearly articulated the basics of the Christian faith. This letter, as I've said before, is Christianity 101. Throughout the history of the church, this book has been the gold standard as to whether the church has been faithful in declaring the gospel. You know, when Martin Luther rediscovered the message of the book of Romans, he called on then the the Middle Ages church to repent and believe again in the gospel of the righteousness of God. You know, the rediscovery of Romans is what gave rise to the Protestant movement. And if I had the time, I would argue that the problems today in many evangelical churches can be traced back to the fact that, that we have again forgotten the contents of this important book. On the basis of that, let me say that when Paul wrote Romans, he was quite aware of what the Holy Spirit had inspired him to write. And so it was especially important to him at the end of the book to warn about interlopers against people who would cut in and and blunt the message that's found in this book. And so Paul begins with the words, I appeal to you. Other translations say, I urge you. Now, if you've been paying close attention to Romans 12 to 16, you, you will have noticed that Paul began this entire section with those very same words. In chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. See, there, he urgently called on them to sacrifice themselves. He he was then very keen not to command them, but to appeal to them, to, to strongly urge them that they offer themselves not in response to a command, but out of a grateful response of worship to God. And so from the context of Romans, we can see how Paul uses the language of an appeal. He wants his readers to have a heartfelt response or an an eager response rather than simply an obedient response. And that's exactly what Paul's doing here. Consider, he says, what you have learned in Romans and about the gospel. Ask yourself, what would happen if you abandoned this teaching? What if you allowed people to cut in and distort the gospel of Jesus? 
You know, and as we've seen, that's exactly what has happened in the history of the church. And when Christians do not guard against the distortion of the truth of the gospel or the beauty of our own salvation and of the countless souls of men and women, the well-being of the church, the souls of our children, well, everything is at stake. And so Paul pleads with him, I urge you, I appeal to you, I plead with you. It's my passionate desire that you respond to what I'm about to say before I end this letter. And as I look at verses 17 to 20, I see three very important appeals. The first is an appeal to watch out or to be vigilant. Imagine a watchman in a watchtower in the ancient world looking for the possibility of an invading army. If the watchman falls asleep, the city is lost. In the same way, watch out. Be vigilant. There are people who will want to invade the truths of the gospel. That's Paul's first appeal. The second appeal is to avoid those people. Have nothing to do with them, he says. Don't invite them into your pulpits. Don't let them have key roles in your church. Don't give them a platform of influence. Make sure that they remain outside of your fellowship. And the third appeal is the appeal to be discerning. Be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. And we will need to look at each one of these three categories of appeal with care because Paul is teaching that if you respond positively to these three appeals, you will safeguard the gospel. You know, and for us who, who read this passage, for many years later, having the example of history now behind us, we can say with assurance that because we have not been vigilant, not careful in excluding those who would destroy the gospel, and because we have not had the discernment demanded of us, we have allowed at times that the gospel message is lost. And this must not be allowed to happen. So let's determine as we come to the end of the book of Romans, never to allow the gospel message to be lost, to continue to concentrate on this message. Allow no interlopers in the way. We're praying that 2022 would be a year that you'd experience the fellowship of the Lord like no other. We believe earnestly to do this means to commit ourselves to prayer and to the reading and study of God's Word. So we want to encourage you to make a commitment to read through the Bible this year. There are so many resources available that can assist you in achieving this goal, including Dr. John's reading plan, available at backtothebible.ca or printed in our bi-monthly Truth in Life magazine, and it's free just for your asking. Whatever resource you choose, your commitment to reading the Bible every day will allow you the opportunity to know the God of the Bible as never before. For more information about Back to the Bible Canada, its resources, or to support this ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Let's begin with Paul's first appeal, his appeal to watchfulness. Look again at verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. Now, please notice that Paul wants the Roman Christians to watch out for people who do actually two things. The first category is in reference to those who create divisions. 
See, I know that many Bible teachers have argued that the divisions that Paul has in mind are the divisions that are caused by people who teach false doctrines. So there are not two categories, but one. And yeah, I guess that's true. False teachers divide God's people. But I might also argue that teaching the truth might also create division. So let's put that thought on hold and we'll come back to that. You know, in the last chapters of Romans, Paul has been consistently teaching about the importance of love. In chapter 12, verse 3, he warned them against pride and commanded Christians not to think more highly of themselves than they ought. Then in verse 9, he taught that love must be genuine, that is, not a pretense, but needs to arise out of a concern for one another. And later on in the same chapter, he warns against taking revenge and commands God's people to live peaceably with one another. In chapter 13, Paul commanded them not to have outstanding debts to others, not to commit adultery, but to love their neighbor as their selves. Now put all of those commands together and we can see that the welfare of the believer is a lifestyle of love, of concern for the welfare of others. And so when Paul calls for watchfulness, he's warning that God's people must be on their guard. The gospel is first attacked, I would argue, not by a frontal assault against the truths of, well, universal sin and then the substitutionary and atoning death of Jesus, and then the glad news that we are justified by grace through faith alone. See, under normal circumstances, those foundational doctrines are only attacked last. The first line of attack comes when men and women who have not been transformed by the gospel, who do not love from the heart, create divisions and create distrust and animosity between God's people. You and I have seen them. These are the people who so mistrust, who frequently criticize and belittle others, who are experts in spreading slander, who exploit the weaknesses and sins of others to create an atmosphere of, of panic where there should not have been panic. Watch out, says Paul. Be on your guard. Notice when this is being done and notice who's doing these things. Don't you let slanderers get away with it. But to this warning comes the second one. Watch out for those people who create doctrinal obstacles. Now, the Greek word for obstacle is the word scandala. We get our English word scandal from that word. And what's interesting about that word is that, that Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians, where he says that the message of the cross is a scandal or a scandalon to those who are perishing. That's because the cross exposes all human beings as sinners and assures us that, that only the death of Jesus can atone for our sins. See, that message is a scandal to anyone who's self-assured of, of his or her own righteousness and doesn't want to confess his or her own sins. But here in Romans 16, Paul identifies a different scandal. This is the scandal when sincere believers are scandalized by doctrines that are contrary to the one true faith. Remember that in Jude verse 3, we're told that there is only one true faith that was forever delivered to the saints. In Paul's day, one of the great scandalizers of the true faith were the Judaizers. I mean, they taught that unless the Gentiles were circumcised and accepted Jewish kosher rules, they could not be saved. And Paul saw through that in an instant. And he knew that this teaching contradicted the gospel. See, if all that is required is faith in Jesus and in his shed blood, then keeping the requirements of the law would not save. 
See, this Judaizer doctrine scandalized the true faith, and this scandal must be stopped. In our day, there are numerous scandala to the faith. I would argue that the new perspectives on Paul, that movement, for example, is upsetting the faith of some. You know, this movement says that we've all misunderstood Paul from the beginning. Justification by faith, at least so this movement says, is not the way to get one's sins forgiven, or in their words, the way to get into the faith. You know, that's fascinating. See, I have at times had discussions with people of this persuasion, and I've asked them, please make it clear to me, what must a person do to be saved? How do we get into the faith? And typically, they find it difficult to answer that question because they're not sure of an answer. But when they do answer, it sounds so much like a doctrine of works, what people must do to be saved, rather than what Christ has done for us so that we might be saved. See, it's a scandal. It confuses the gospel. So please understand me. At stake in this question is the eternal salvation of countless individuals. Unless we make it overwhelmingly plain, that we can't be saved from our sins by our works, that the only works that count are the works of Christ on our behalf. He died for the sins of all who put their trust in him. See, all that we can then do is renounce ourselves and our sins and put our trust in him who alone can forgive. Anything but anything that obscures that message is a scandal to the gospel. And so Paul pleads, get on your watchtower and watch out for anyone who muddies the waters of our salvation. Now then, Paul moves on to the second urgent appeal, looking at the last part of verse 17. Avoid them, he says. Now, this language of separation from false teachers and, and those who create division is not a new teaching. I mean, you might compare that with what Paul says in, in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 14. There, there he wrote, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. And then in the next verse, Paul adds, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. That's because in the case of 2 Thessalonians, Paul is speaking about those people who who are unwilling to work for a living. And instead, they're just slackers. So he's not speaking there about those who scandalize the gospel. But I mention this distinction here for a very good reason. The phrase, have nothing to do with them, or as Paul says it in Romans, avoid them, does not mean that we utterly cast a person off. It does, however, imply that we don't enter into the kind of fellowship with that person that allows them to have influence in the church. Now, John said something very similar to that in in 2 John verse 10. There he writes, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. So the context there is that the churches met in homes, and and furthermore, all house churches in those days gave people opportunity to share a word. And so to refuse a false teacher into your house meant you refused him any access in teaching or in influence. And so the application to our day is clear. When it comes to people who are either slanderers or those whose teaching of the gospel is not crystal clear— Well, don't let them be Sunday school teachers or home group leaders or preachers in the pulpit or deacons or elders. Prevent them from having any role of influence. The souls of men and women are at stake. Take this matter as a matter of great urgency. 
Now then, Paul gives his final appeal. Not only be watchful, not only avoid them, but also be discerning. Paul wants God's people to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. And what Paul means here is quite plain. People who cause divisions and who teach false doctrines are all about themselves. Paul talks about them serving their own appetites. They don't sacrifice themselves for the cause of Christ. They go out of their way to gain power and to seek to be first in the eyes of the church. And so Paul's not saying be ignorant about evil. He says be innocent of evil. What's the difference? He wants God's people to be quite aware of what is evil, but never to participate in what is evil. Don't experience evil. Be innocent of participation in what evil people are doing. But on the other hand, do be well informed as to what evil people are doing. That's because Paul adds, be wise about what is good. He means here that their obedience to the gospel should everywhere be known. All of us should be exceedingly wise about the gospel. And that brings us full circle. Unless the church of Jesus Christ contends for the faith, the gospel is soon obscured. And that's why Paul ends the book of Romans the way that he does. He knows that after he leaves this earth, savage wolves will come and do anything they can to obscure the faith. And truth be told, there are thousands of ways to obscure the faith. Christian history has shown that. It is for that reason that I think we've got to continue to study the book of Romans for the rest of our lives. In this way, the truths of the gospel are constantly before us. While loving people, we will not tolerate any departures from the gospel. John, I have to say there are so many persuasive people out there, wolves in sheep's clothing. How do we protect ourselves from those people that would lead us astray? Ben, I can think about uh, having a conversation uh, not long ago with, with a woman who was involved in a church where clearly false doctrines were being taught. I mean, there's a denial of the essentials of the faith. And I, I spoke to her about that. She said, well, I, I'm just not much paying attention to that kind of stuff. So when the you know, scripture says, watch out, it means that we're on our guard. So every Christian is called upon to be that. And, and I would argue that the book of Romans really, if you learn it well, will heresy-proof your faith. You'll identify false doctrines when you hear them. It'll be just like alarm bells that go off in your head. So I, I don't know what else to do to tell people, but I can't warn you against everything, but I can commend to you true and saving faith. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow for the conclusion of our series right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. We're coming to the deadline for your opportunity to register for the Back to the Bible Canada 2022 Israel Experience. The time is drawing close and we're nearing capacity. So if you're thinking of joining us for the Holy Land Adventure from April 24th to May 2nd, 2022 with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, musical guest Laura Hastings, and the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team, now's the time. Tour the Holy Land, walk where Jesus, Paul, David walked, sail the Sea of Galilee, visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, and join together for a communion service at the Garden Tomb. The full Israel Experience itinerary is available online, and to ensure an intimate experience, event numbers are limited. 
so register soon. For more information, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca.